welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, God, one of the most interesting people I've ever talked to, from the band Blur, from the band Gorillaz, Dave Roundtree is on the show, and this is... If you think we're just going to be talking about music in this episode, you got another thing coming. But more on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. And he will get the message to me. He also runs an Instagram page for this podcast and a Facebook page for this podcast. And there's a TikTok page for this podcast. And there's a YouTube page for this podcast. All of those are found at Turned Out a Punk on their respective platforms. You can find me on on Instagram and for the time being Twitter at Left for Damien. If you want to support the show, tell your friends all about it. Let everyone that you know know that we do this podcast and there's a lot of cool episodes. A lot of episodes. Oh my gosh, there's a ton. I play in a band. We are called Fucked Up. You can find out more information about this band over at fuckedup.cc. We have uh, tour dates on there coming up. I don't think they've been announced yet, but there's there's some great tour dates coming up. I'm very excited about some of the tour stuff coming up. Uh, but you can find records by us and past shows we played. A list of past shows and photos and, and everything. And check out the band I play in. I, I, love, I love the band. So check out the music we do. Uh, also, I am going to be going to the Punk Rock Museum in Las Vegas, Nevada, on the 24th and 25th to do a live Turned Out a Punk podcast and do some tours. So if you are in the Las Vegas area and you got, you know, you're like, I got nothing to do but burn out here in the intense heat, come in to the Punk Rock Museum and see me. I'm going to be doing a live podcast on 1130 on the, on the 24th of July with Fat Mike, the most listened to guest ever on this show, and Fred Armson. And, it, you know, like on the surface, cool conversation, but I cannot think of two people that I know that have more divisive tastes in punk rock from diametrically opposed taste in punk rock should be probably a better way than to put it than those two guys. So I will see what the common ground is. I will, uh, parse out some, um, some stuff but anyway both of them are returning to the show for a live podcast from the punk rock museum i'm going to be doing tours come come and hang out fred's going to be doing stuff for armistice down there on the 23rd we're going to be doing some stuff but come out 24th and 25th it's going to be a good time we're going to be some um intense nerding out in person and if you can't make it out to that then this weekend go if you're listening to this one this came out Go check out the Long Hot Punk Summer Series. There's going to be some screenings. Check out Emissions Records underscore Toronto for more information about those in the city. It's a hot weekend wherever you are. It's going to be real hot in Las Vegas. Luckily, uh, cannabis keeps me cool. Okay, on to today's show. As I said off the top, one of the most interesting people I've ever spoken to, Dave Roundtree from the band Blur. Also played on some Gorillaz records as well. A person who, I've been a fan of Blur, I don't want to give too much away before you hear the episode, but for a very long time. Like, fan of the people in the band and, and stuff. Like a, Anyway, you'll hear it in the episode, we talk about this. And so, getting to sit down with Dave, I knew there was a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about, but oh my gosh, has this guy done so much outside of music? And we talk about all of it in a second. I'm not going to ramble on, this is a good one. 
Uh, I think that's it. Oh, uh, by the way, though, uh, if you want to check out more Blur, Blur has a brand new record, The Ballad of Darren, which is coming out this week. Uh, Also, not to be overlooked, Dave Roundtree put out a fantastic record called Radio Songs on Cooking Vinyl earlier this year. So this guy is prolific. 2023. He's not going to be, you know, have have too much time to spend on these other extracurricular activities that we talk about in this episode because he's been doing a lot of music and going to have doing a lot of touring. So check out those records. As I said, Blur is coming out uh, like a couple days from now if you're listening to this when this drops. And if not, I'm sure it's already out and I'm sure you've heard some of the songs on it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore because as I said off the top, this is a good one. Uh, That's it for me. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Dave Roundtree on Turned Out a Punk. Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Well, this is a huge thrill for me. I've been a fan of Blur since since the name Blur was decided, weirdly. We'll get to that, I'm sure, in the course of this episode. But I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? <clears throat> yeah, I do. I remember, I, well, it was huge. In the, We're talking punk rock, right? We're talking uh, 1970s punk rock. And uh, I remember I read about it in the newspapers. It was a, it was a newspaper story long before the music was kind of widely distributed, um, because the Sex Pistols was so great at self promotion. You know, they they um, they famously uh, swore on a TV program something virtually unheard of, and so they immediately made them the bad boys of uh, of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the music industry at that point from that point onwards, really, and everything they did made headline news, you know, with the newspapers loving it, but writing these sort of terrible sort of uh, salacious reports, kind of ending up with them pronouncing that uh, today's youth were uh, fatally flawed, you know, and the world was going to hell in a handcart as a result. So, um, yeah, the, the hypocrisy I really enjoyed as well as the, as well as the, the kind of idea that, uh, you know, that, that kind of um, more, like up until then, I guess rebellion, you'd kind of seen rebellion, teenage rebellion had been a kind of American idea and kind of quite standardized, you know, a rebel in America sort of bought a motorbike and a leather jacket. It was all kind of also rather tame. Yes, of course, they uh, raised hell, but uh, it was a kind of, it just seemed to be another sort of youth culture rather than something uh, genuinely um, um, anti-establishment, which I thought pop music, which I thought punk music was. So yeah, I thought it was very exciting. Didn't hear the music until much later. They banned it on all the main radio stations, and you know they banned it on top of the pops, which is the main TV program at the time. The first punk song I heard was the Stranglers, actually. Um, <laughs> a controversial punk band don Letts, when he was on the show got very upset at the mention of them being a punk band yeah i did they really aren't they're a rock band you know but they came along they came along in the first wave of punk music and they were to some extent like they would probably hate this to be described this way but they were sort of the acceptable face of punk music you know, they didn't spit at anyone. They were swearing in their lyrics. You know, what they got up to off stage ended up making them far more controversial than the Sex Pistols. But anyway, yeah, 
Well, I guess going back to before punk, like what kind of stuff were you into? Were you aware of like Dr. Feelgood and that sort of, and I find it very interesting you say that, that this was like a uniquely British form of rebellion because you're right. So much of English youth culture kind of from skiffle music on was influenced by, I guess, ultimately African-American music, but, but uh, American music. Yeah, we we imported youth culture from America wholesale, you know, during the Second World War, really. And it took a long time to develop something of our own. Of course, you know, Americans say we didn't develop this thing on our own. It was, uh, it was uh, you know, based on some American bands that were doing something similar. And there may well be some truth in that. I, I mean, as much as anything, it was a sort of fashion rebellion, wasn't it? it was a Malcolm McLaren was responsible for the kind of look of English punk music, which uh, American punk means American punk kind of looked like American rock with maybe slightly longer, slightly less kempt hair. You know, it didn't really have a, a look about it. Whereas the, the the fashion, Malcolm McLaren's sort of fashion ethos went side by side with the musical ethos of it all and it was important i think for it to look a certain for, for it to look com confrontational as well as for it to sound confrontational you know our, our first record label boss used to say that uh, good punk good uh, good uh, contemporary music breaks minor taboos you know and that that was kind of that was uh, what punk really did in 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 spades you know mm -hmm. lots of uh, Lots of minor taboos all got broken. You know, nobody killed anyone else. There weren't major taboos being broken, but it was, you know, the whole thing, I don't know, for a young kid, it was just incredibly exciting. And yeah, I remember first hearing the Stranglers on the TV on top of the pops. And me and my sister looked at each other and said, this is punk, isn't it? And we went, yes, yes it is. And where did you kind of go from there? Like your dad was uh, working at the BBC and eventually BBC did have sessions. Were you able to ever sort of tag along and see any of these bands play? Cause there's so many obviously famous ones. No, he was, he was working in the, in the, as a sound engineer in the BBC in the 1960s, you okay. know, so that was long before my time. By the, by the time I remember him being at the BBC, he'd been, he'd been, he and a bunch of other people who had physics degrees were put in charge of this new compute fangled computer thing that the BBC had just bought and nobody knew how to operate. So he, yeah, he moved out of radio into the, and sort of founded the computer department in the BBC from, you know, way before I can remember. So no, I didn't, uh, I, I sort of, I didn't uh, manage to take advantage in any of that really. So no, I didn't, I didn't see any of the sessions or anything. Where did you kind of go though, from hearing the Stranglers taste wise and things like that? Well, I, uh, I started, I mean, I was only a young kid, so, uh, I adopted what bits of the ethos could uh, reasonably be adopted by a young kid, you know, which wasn't very much, but, you know, I tried to adopt a more punk attitude in my life, kind of sneer at things. And, you know, I'd start putting safety pins in my trousers and things like that. <laughs> kind of spiked my hair up a bit and it kind of remained that way you know that that sort of that that uh fashion sort of subculture musical subculture just kind of evolved then into what happened in the 80s i mean there's a straight line between the, the, those kids who are my age and dressing up as punks you know ended up being the being the kids in the 80s with sort of outrageous fashion sense and kind of, 
you know, ridiculous haircuts and, and listening to electronic music. The sneer was still there. You kind of get the idea, I think, from looking, you know, looking back, you, it seems like those kind of 80s, that 80s fashion scene was less confrontational than the 70s punk scene, but actually it wasn't. I was there and it was just, it was the same kind of, you know, the same people who, were, who wanted to challenge you with what they were wearing and to, you know, provoke provoke something by by dressing in an outrageous way yeah it, like you were saying earlier it was kind of like this sort of total youth rebellion like be it fashion be it music but also like film as well like animation even like the stuff in the great rock and roll swindle like the influence yeah. that had on people it just it feels like it was a a moment of just sort of cultural shift that's still being felt the reverberations i think are, are something we're still kind of experiencing yeah, and the, the, you know, there was a huge wave of new bands after the Pistols. I mean, the Pistols exploded, imploded fairly quickly, really, and it ended really badly. You know, with Sid Vicious dying, well, that was just horrible, you know. But by then, there was a whole punk scene, you know, the Buzzcocks and the Rosillos and the Adverts, especially. That was the first band, punk band I saw live um, at Essex University. We were absolutely fantastic, and they, they, their bass player, a woman bass player called Gay Advert, who everybody in the audience immediately fell in love with, including me. <laughs> she had this kind of smouldering look about her. Um, so yeah, the yeah, I the the difficulty for where I grew up, which is Colchester, is a small market town in East Anglia and Eastern Eastern England. So when if there weren't many places in the town for those kind of um, uh, those kind of bands to play, you know, there weren't there were sort of pub and pub and bar gigs for bands who could attract 30 people. And there were some large venues, you know, for people who could attract a 1000 people. But for those kind of, you know, 100, 200, 300, capacity shows which all of those bands were at that time you know they were, they had to play at the university and the university is quite a way out of town it was a big campus university about 10 miles out of town it wasn't easy to get to and back if you're it wasn't a walk you know you had to be driven there by your parents imagine getting out of the car dressed in your punk regalia with your mum going be careful you know come back <laughs> don't get into any trouble mum go away well that that was that that first advert show. I think Special Duties formed in after that show, right? Too legendarily. Oh, I don't know. Quite possibly. I don't know if it was their first show, but that was the first show I saw. I doubt it was their first show. They were on tour by that time. No, sir. I meant the first uh, like sort of punk show that came to town type thing. Because I think Special Duties is the. I was trying to think of Colchester bands that I know, and I think Special Duties is the one that kind of popped out. Yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah, I. God knows. God knows. That's a, a name I only vaguely know. Yeah. So. They had two kind of like, they were, they went to war with Crass was their kind of claim to frame. Fuck, I think fuck Crass was their first single. And then uh, they had fight, fight Crass, not punk was their sort of intro to their song. And it, it was like, you know, a very brief thing, but they had ultimately reformed and kind of put out records in the, early 2000s and things like that but it's interesting like you're saying there's not i guess because there's a lack of venues bands kind of have to form elsewhere or you can't really stick around and kind of develop locally 
Yeah, and it's Colchester, there's, there's, to some extent, the South of England suffers from the fact that London is plonked in the middle of it. So if you're, if you're at all ambitious and you live in one of those towns that I grew up in, which is, you know, like 50 miles, 100 miles outside London, you'll just go to London. Why wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the minute anybody got any success, they, they left. So it was a, it was a very odd, it was a very odd situation, really. So that meant, you know, that there was no incentive to set up these venues where these bands could play because they would just go and play in London. They weren't particularly interested. Wasn't enough of an audience in Colchester to, to sustain it anyway. So yeah, but it's a problem that never really fixed itself. Well, like you were saying also, when this sort of wave happens and all these bands kind of have permission to form, it feels like there's a, sort of this wave of energy where just bands are just you know, drawn to London or drawn to cities where they can, or people are just drawn, I should say, to these places yeah. where they can form these bands and kind of can do things, I guess, like yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's always been the problem. You know, that was always the problem when I was a kid, and that's still the problem now for these towns. Why should people stay? Why should creative people stay when they're in the orbit already of this massive megalopolis, you know, where anything is possible, where dreams can be made reality? Why should they stay in their little towns? Were you familiar with the Disco Zombies? Because that's Andy Gill's band, of course, who you end up working with later on. But they were one of those bands that I, I love that kind of feels like they were one of given permission to kind of make music in the wake of punk and took it in a different direction. Like they're not sex pistols, but they're still punk. Yeah, no, again, a name I know, but not, not uh, familiar with the music particularly. I mean, I, you know, I was, as you rightly said, I was one of the people that left anyway. So, I mean, my, I suppose the kind the, the successor to all those bands that I remember the most was uh, the 012. I mean, I, when I moved up to London, I, I was squatting for several years before I finally ended up moving to France with a band and we lived there for a few years. Um, but, uh, so I was, I was into the squat punk scene in, in London and, uh, yeah, there was, there was some absolutely extraordinary bands and this, this band, um, well, it's called world domination enterprises and it turned into the 012 and they had, uh, song called asbestos led asbestos which is where the guitar is so distorted and so affected you can't even hear what he's doing he may be changing chords he may not be you know it was just a, a sound i've never heard uh never heard before and never heard since it's quite extraordinary sound they were very di disparaging of uh of uh, Sex Pistols for signing a major label deal, you know, that was their thing. <laughs> yeah. The Sex Pistols sold out, <laughs> which everybody says when they can't get a major label deal and then suddenly backtracks from when they can. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the thing, right? Like you, it, it's ultimately pure until you don't need it to be pure anymore and then it can be co-opted exactly. into something different. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of, I've tried to kick against, you know, this, my entire life I've been kind of, because because the it's a great defense for why we didn't achieve what we wanted to achieve is that no it was a conscious decision to only go down this road and to set these kind of weird artificial barriers that's our art you know and that's because 99 percent of bands don't achieve what they want to achieve 99% of bands 99.999% of bands don't have number one singles number one albums headline Glastonbury you know all of that kind of stuff 
It's the kind of standard UK-based defence. I didn't want to do that anyway. It's the losers that do that, you know, it's the sellouts that do that. I always only ever wanted to play the local pub around the corner from me, you know. You know I play music for myself. If, somebody, if everybody else likes it, that's a bonus. That's the, the standard retort, <laughs> which, yep. uh, you know, we, we used to make a lot of, we used to make fun of because you used to hear it so often. <laughs> well, that's the thing is it, it just, it is, it, it's ultimately everyone does this because they want someone to appreciate what they're doing. Like that's the reality of it. And it's, it's just how far you can take it. And obviously you guys took it as far as it can be taken. But I think that's the thing about punk is like it allowed bands to kind of set their own goalposts. And so it doesn't have to be world domination. Like it could be like we're talking about bands that only did one and done singles, like bands that, you know, no one remembers, but they're just kind of these footnotes. But yet they kind of have these ripple effects that did have these sort of impacts, like the bands you're talking about in in the squat scene that impacted you that ultimately look at the impact Blur had. It's It's wild to think of like the ripple effect this like squat scene had. Yeah absolutely absolutely it was a generation really it was a, it was a point at which london was becoming impossibly expensive to live in um if you wanted to if you, if you were at the start of your career in the creative arts you know it was only possible to live there if you were going to go and get a full-time job doing something else and so it just became really really difficult the fallback position was squatting um they, it was a, a political as well as a economic choice the, the squat scene evolved into a kind of anarchist movement um and it set up uh, that there was a, a helpline for squatters a kind of a, a, a advice center uh, permanently staffed called the advisory Center. it used to be called the squatters advisory service and then someone realized that said sas which is <laughs> the name of a military unit yes, so they quickly renamed it the advisory service for squatters and we said that says ass is that any better <laughs> <laughs> we're going like, oh, to do it that anyway we're not going to change it again all right then. I think ultimately ultimately like a, a squad i think asses might be a little more befitting than sas at the end <laughs> of the day <laughs> it was it felt like the sas when you were when you were moving into the squat on day one because you often had to you know, somehow break in or, uh, you know, climb in the back window or something and then change the locks. And once you change the locks, you had legal rights, you see, but when they caught you climbing in the back window, they would just arrest you and take you to, <laughs> take you to, take you to court the next day. And that happened to several people I knew, you know, kind of criminalized by that. It was amazing when we started going to Europe, like in the band I play in and playing these venues that not so much in the UK, by that point, the squats we were staying at had been converted to sort of cooperative housing and things like that. But certainly in other parts of Europe where you're playing these squats that have existed for generations and they've just been passed down from people to people and they're sort of an established little ecosystem and provides shelter for people and, and ultimately cultural hubs, like that's where a lot of bands played yeah no i've been to some of those squats as well and uh yeah they're incredibly exciting places um the 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 it was never really legitimized though in the uk it existed on the fringes of uh of uh kind of mainstream housing it was sort of tolerated because by and large the squatters did up the houses so they would move into these derelict houses and make them had habitable um, and so it was kind of tolerated 
um, until it wasn't. You know, a new government came along and as part of their manifesto decided that they were going to clean up housing and, you know, throw all these squatters out onto the streets. So they brought in a new law that criminalised squatting and the whole thing just stopped straight away. Well, it um, obviously that caused a lot of problems, caused a lot of people to be homeless. A lot of people were living in squats because they found it hard to to uh, uh, engage in the in the correct way with mainstream society, and you know, had kind of fallen through the net. And squatting was the ultimate safety net, really. Mm -hmm. That's that's criminalised a lot of those people. Very, very little was set up in its place, you know, the, the council housing stock has been sold off in the UK, the, like the social housing stock sort of sold off in the UK over the last, since, since Thatcher really set up uh, uh, the, the right for people to buy their council homes off the, off the council, which would have been a great idea if had every pound they raised doing that, they'd have built new council homes, but the councils was specifically stopped from doing that. So, uh, um, you know, the council stock has been uh, reduced over time and the uh, housing associations with the other, the other way of uh, that people can find social housing um, and uh, social housing are like housing cooperatives, really. I mean, housing associations like housing cooperatives where groups set up and buy, buy properties and then let them out at, uh, at, uh, at uh, cost price really to, to tenants, but they just aren't, you know, the, cost of buildings for doing that and it's just rocketed it's just it's got insanely expensive to buy these old warehouses and convert them you know because everybody wants these old warehouses so uh, so that's kind of died on the vine as well really there's a full-on housing crisis now um very little political will to actually do anything about it it's a you know when i was a councillor almost all of the problems I came across were housing problems in one way or another. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because I've had a couple, um, Joey Keithley from DOA, Joey Shithead, Charlie Angus are both, you know, work in government now, and Charlie Angus yeah. is an MP over here, and Joey Shithead is a city councillor. What's it like kind of going from sort of this this very practical reality of what squatting is like to the sort of bureaucracy where you're kind of faced with the shift that I think is happening globally, where there's sort of this really selling off to the highest bidder of, uh, I guess, humanity ultimately, but it really does feel like all these things that people were fighting for and these things that, you know, like you're saying, they're, they're proven, they, they do help people, they do provide things for people are being just stripped away from us systematically. And I guess you had a front row seat to kind of watch this stuff happen in a way. Yeah, it was. A, I mean, it was a political choice taken by the very right wing government in the UK in the eighties. Really, um, government decided it would be a far better society if, um, instead of renting homes, people owned homes, and if you know, if people owned shares rather than had savings and all of this kind of stuff. Modelled really, I think, on the kind of consumer boom in the states. Um, and elsewhere in the world, but uh, yeah, they decided to transform transform the UK um, into into a radically different kind of uh, society. And the problem was that the UK, you know, post Second World War, the 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 
successive UK governments set up lots of social structures because it was recognised that the people that have made the biggest sacrifices in, in the war weren't necessarily the uh, rich landed gentry and the aristocracy, it was the ordinary working soldiers and they were coming back to a, to a country uh, where they had very little. You know, they, they, from the from the First World War and in between the wars, the the aristocracy here was still very much the ruling class. It's very, very, very much a two tier society. And that successive governments post war, immediately following the Second World War, try to fix that and make it into a one tier society by building from the bottom up. So an awful lot of new housing was built. The wealth, the welfare state was set up. Um, all kinds of changes happen politically and economically to benefit those, uh, you know, those working class people who'd made this extraordinary sacrifice during the Second World War. And then along comes the 80s and uh, this right wing government just decides to dismantle all of that, you know, on the, on the kind of what's really a sort of a religious faith that if you put the markets in charge, everything just gets better for everybody. Well, we've seen where that goes. And we've seen, you know, it's it's taken, <laughs> it's taken what's happened between the 80s and now to, you know, to see just what an unequal and unfair society you end up if that's your if that's your mantra. Let's just put the markets in charge. They will sort everything out. You know, the idea how that could ever have been conceived as being sensible kind of social policy, let alone economic policy, I have no idea. But didn't anybody at the time say, why do you, why do you think that? Why do you think the markets are going to look after the kind of, you know, the, the sick, the elderly, the, uh, the, the poor? Why, why? What makes you think the people running these big corporations are going to take any interest in those people at all? Well, I think... No. I think you put it perfectly there. It's like a religion, right? Like you just have to have faith that this is going to work out. But as we, as you're saying, like it doesn't work out much in the same way religion a lot of times. <laughs> no, and it, incredible that anybody ever thought it would. I mean, and politics these days seems to be run on those kind of faiths in the UK. And we've just, I mean, I don't know how big news this is outside the UK, but we've left the European Union a few years ago. Yes. Why on faith? So, you know, the, the politicians imagined that outside the European Union, things would be better. They named all of the ways in which things will be better, will be richer, food will be cheaper, you know, housing will be more affordable, it'd be easier to set up companies, manufacturing will be easier. But they didn't explain how these two things were connected. How does leaving the EU mean food prices go down? Nobody ever, nobody ever drew an actual kind of causal connection between the two, and of course, We've seen food prices now at the highest since in 40 years. I and mean, the whole thing is just laughable. Seems that we basically import most of our food from the EU and now we have to pay duty on it at the border. Oh, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> well, and you know, well, as a musician now going over to the UK, it's like, it's just like, and that's the easiest, like a musician is like, that's the most privileged position to be in to travel and get to play music, obviously. But how much more difficult it is just as a musician I can only imagine like everything that has to be brought in, everything that's imported. And it's just, but it's, that was just the first place that it happened. I think you're seeing it with Trump in America. We're certainly seeing it in Canada with the rise of populism here. Mm. People are easily manipulated and it's these sort of 
things that have replaced religion. Like at one time it would have been put your faith in this higher power. And now it's just put your faith in these politicians that fill the same role in people's lives. It seems. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it, yeah, it's, it's definitely got harder for, for creative industries and music, especially, you know, we, the, the, the kind of richness and diversity of the UK music scene was funded to a great, to a great degree by touring in Europe. You know, the fact that we had access to that audience, a potential audience of 500 million people meant that we could uh, we could uh, turn professional at a far earlier stage in our career, you know, because you could you could make the thing self-sustaining um, because you could, as well as playing London, you could play Paris, Berlin, you know, Munich, Seville, you name it. All, all without having to do any additional paperwork. You just had to get there, you know, and you got your transit van and you just had to get there. You know, <laughs> now it's, it's, it, the, everything has turned on its head. It's wildly expensive to do these kind of things. And there's no guarantee that, uh, that, uh, that the kind of accommodations that uh, various foreign country, countries have made kindly to allow this to continue again, you know, like France, for example, has said, well, let's, let's waive the rules and just come, you know, and we'll, we'll deal with it, you know, which is great and a lifesaver for many musicians, but uh, there's no guarantee that if the government continues to taunt and goad the European Union, like they are, the countries like France, I'm just going to say, well, fuck you then, you know, <laughs> if that's your attitude, piss off, you know, go and play and bloody, Topstiff then. <laughs> I guess, right. Going back to your exodus to France, when did you move there? I moved there in about 1986, maybe 87, something like that. I was uh, playing in a band. Uh, we'd moved to London. We were doing the squatting thing. But it's very, very difficult then and now to get to the first rung on the bottom ladder. We, we were finding it, you know, the doors closed. Every door we tried to push open was closed. And I think randomly we were just speaking to a, f a French guy in a pub who said, why do you go to France? There's nowhere, there's loads of places to play, nowhere near enough bands. You can, you know, you're easily good enough to be, to do it for a living in France. We went, right, we'll do that. We literally, <laughs> it was like, we, uh, literally one friday we pulled our meager resources bought a transit van loaded our uh, our worldly belongings into it and uh, got on the ferry over to calais i think it was 1984 i may be wrong when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What was the band called? Oh God, it was called Idle Vice. I was going to ask you, what was the sound of Idle Vice? I've looked everywhere to hear any recordings of it. I've just unearthed some old demo tapes, actually. Oh, um, awesome! 
recently, so I might uh, might put those up one day. Yeah, we we it was it was a revelation. I mean, it didn't work out how we thought, but actually, it was so much more fun because there there's a there's a um, tradition in France. One day a year, something to do with the revolution. I don't quite understand it, but one day a year, you're allowed to make as much noise as you like, and nobody can tell you to stop. So, so all the uh, municipalities set up a big stage in the centre in the town square and people come up and play concerts like all day and all night and it's a wonderful fête de la musique it's called a wonderful thing um, and so there's a tradition of street music in France that there kind of isn't elsewhere so we found if we we could just go to go to a town find a nice little cafe near the central square the cafe owner would allow us to plug in our uh, extension lead into his cafe and do a little gig outside and we had uh, one of the the guitarist's girlfriend came with us and she would work the crowd with a hat you know getting getting uh, donations from the crowd and it was just wonderful we played for an hour till we had enough raised enough money to go on to the next town we traveled right the way around france doing that for the first summer then in the winter it got a little less enticing so uh, we, we found somewhere to stay the winter and did some recording and um did it again the second year the slightly it's a slight lineup change and we bought we'd uh we'd recorded a kind of i think it's like an eight track cassette tape which we uh we had we took a uh a cassette a dual cassette player with us where you could play it on one and copy it on the other and so by night we would churn out these copies which we would sell the next day this machine got less and less but the fidelity reduced every time we did it so you can imagine by the end of six months you could barely hear the uh you could barely hear the music but nobody ever complained i think when we finally moved back to england we threw it off the ferry <laughs> so it's still sitting there in the english channel somewhere threw it off the ferry on the way home bye bye you served us well that's amazing none of those tapes have circulated those that's got to be like one of the ultimate blur collectible like yeah. items there i didn't keep one so but <laughs> i think i do have a, a cassette with some of our music on that's awesome so what was the vibe of the band like obviously you're able to play on the streets it must have been fairly accessible well we we was we were we called ourselves jazz punk it was kind of largely instrumental music kind of you know with a punk edge but uh we could all play so we kind of jazzed it up a bit it's quite <laughs> I haven't heard anything like it before or since, probably for good reason, to be honest. <laughs> it went down well in France. You know, we got lots of press coverage and radio stations. Loved the fact that we were touring around, kind of, you know, fending for ourselves, having an adventure. You know, we bigged it up, kind of. Uh, yeah, it, it was a it was a fun time, really fun time. Two two or three years, two years, I think I was there for. I did keep a diary actually. One day I'll find that and uh, see what I've actually see what I said. <laughs> I think I think you've just got a reissue project right there. You got these demos and you got the diary for the liner notes. Like, I think it's all it's all in hand. <laughs> yeah, I'm not entirely sure there's an album's worth of material. I don't think I'm that far. <laughs> when you left England, had the uh, National Front kind of insurgency into the skinhead thing and ultimately, because from what I understand, that completely kind of ruins things for a lot of places for a long time. Had that started yet or is that later? Yeah, that had started. I mean, that started pretty much straight away in the 70s as I remember it. 
yeah, you know, the Skinheads were a non-racist movement, you know, everyone was great friends and Scar was happening and it was all, you know, it was, it was boisterous, shall we say, the concerts, you know, you would, uh, you would, uh, it would have your wits about you, but they weren't violent. Mm. But yeah, the Skinhead started crashing places and yeah, it all got pretty horrible, pretty, pretty, pretty early on. And, you know, then they, like so often happens with the far right, they completely usurp the movement, you know, and the kind of skinhead, skinhead uh, um, fashion and the Union Jack and all of that became right wing symbols. And, and uh, really, nobody could really, if you put a Union Jack up, I like when I first came to Canada, I was just gobsmacked to see this was in the very early 90s, I guess. And Canada was the first place we played in North America and we of all the things that made us go wow it was people having Canadian flags outside on flagpoles outside their house I've seen that before in the UK if you'd done that you'd have got a brick through the window you'd probably get your house burned down because it would have been assumed that you were uh, some kind of Nazi sympathizer if not an outright Nazi yourself mm -hmm. the, the national flag had got completely uh, 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 completely usurped by the right wing, and uh, kind of getting the flag back was was uh, a kind of uh, sort of political goal, really, of uh, of uh, English bands in the in the eighties and nineties. I think you know, it started with Morrissey. I mean, Morrissey's questionable politics anyway. Though I think actually he just wants to shock people. You know, I think he just says whatever is the most controversial thing he can think of at any one time because it doesn't seem to be much. He's cool. always had that streak to him. He's always had that kind of like need for attention. And yeah. uh, I find it, well, Billy Duffy was on the show. I was just obsessed with asking him about when they were doing that first band together, because I was like, did he have that in the punk thing? Like, you know, was that already there that early on in the nosebleeds or did that come later on with the Smiths? But he, you're right. Like he's always whatever. I remember reading the first interview I read with him was in Q and he was talking about the bravery it takes to commit suicide and just like the most ridiculous thing someone could say. Yeah. <laughs> like, just, like, it, but, I mean, you know, here's the thing. It's kind of charming as a 20 year old, as a 60 year old, it's kind of, just kind of sad. Yeah. <laughs> you think surely you, surely you've had enough attention. Now you can just relax. They just be nice. <laughs> Talk about nice things and nice people doing nice stuff. You know, we all we all have to grow up eventually. Even you know, even me. Yeah, no, it, it's it's interesting when we first went over to the UK. I remember we did a, a BBC session and they were asking us for songs to play, and we wanted to play the business doing the crass cover of "Do They Owe Us the Living," and the BBC at that point was like, "Oh, we don't play Oi," because that had been almost completely co-opted. Obviously, the business are an anti-fascist band, but that whole thing had been so assumed that it was just all verboten. And it's interesting now with bands like Chubby and the Gang and and uh, the Chisel and sort of the, the the return of sort of UK Oi, but it's taken like 20 years to get that back. Yeah. Yeah. And the, well, the far right are doing other things now. You know, they're 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 uh... they're on Facebook. Yeah, and they're much cleverer. Mm -hmm. You know, these are people with the with degrees and uh, marketing experience now that that are trying to push that agenda. You know, the the sort of invention of culture wars and 
and those kind of things and Steve Bannon and Trump and you know we have our our uh, acolytes here that they've done it in a in a much smarter way they've mainstreamed all of that in a way that uh, that really the far right in the 70s and 80s could only have dreamed of and they've legitimized those those voices legitimize those opinions um in a in a frightening way you know i think you have to be so much smarter now as a as an ordinary member of society to be able to spot the lunacy because it's lunacy dressed up as as common sense and you know kind of rational thinking whereas at least in the 60s and 70s they were clearly nutters you know and they attracted other nutters and you could tell who the who the crazies were because they were the one punching other people you know now it's not kind of predicated on violence and and uh, you know kind of uh, physical intimidation it's uh, it's it's all very much more subtle yeah absolutely frightening so um yeah going back to much more pleasant topics when you get back to london um how long is it before you you join circus <laughs> well how long was it not long i when i got back when i finally decided to move back you know i did flit flitted backwards and forwards a little bit but i finally decided to move back and get a job because i was fed up with being penniless really and uh so i got a job in a uh i might my uh, college time i've been doing computer a computer studies course computer science course so i got a job a couple of jobs doing that and i loved computers but uh you know after doing that for a year or two i it it beat out of me any passion i had for computers at all and to the point where I, after that, I really didn't look at computers for a decade, you know, really. Well, you say that, but aren't you the one of the first people to have a website for your yeah. band? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was in the early 90s, yes. Um, but I'm talking the 80s. But yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, the, the birth of the internet, that was what got me back into computers. That's got me my first computer again, Windows 3.1.1, Windows for work groups. And uh, all of that kind of stuff. And yeah, I got involved in the open source movement and started contributing to various things. So Linux was just, everybody else calls it Linux. The, because yeah, Linux. Uh, Linus yeah. Torvalds was uh, the, the founder of it. And that was his name. I had no idea that was his name. So I called it Linux. And then it was the biggest controversy really on the nascent internet. Was it Linux or was it Linux? To the point where Linus released a clip of audio of him saying hello i'm linus torvelts and linus is pronounced linus linux <laughs> oh, no. <And> I, <laughs> that was that but i was an early contributor i um i wrote some device drivers for uh do you remember P pc ncia cards oh yeah 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 they, of course very dead technology now but that was the way you used to expand your computer so i wrote some device drivers for pcmcia cards for linux oh um, that's wild yeah um which is very incredibly exciting to be at the kind of the the, the forefront of that really um and you know i so 
Corey Doctorow who were around at the time, you know, and the, so I was kind of hanging around with those guys a bit and just felt like there was, you know, the, the open rights group had just started in the UK and the open software, the free software foundation in America had just started and we were kind of running conferences about free software and it was all very, very exciting. And uh, still, I think probably the most productive part of computer technology ever, you know, the, the amount of that software that we all wrote in those days that's uh, that these that now powers the modern world is quite astonishing you know but uh well, yeah it, that, oh go it, on it's interesting because like beto o'rourke too um was involved in like early sort of like hacktivism stuff in america and like you were saying well like we we're talking earlier about music and fashion it's also the early days of the internet very much sort of the cyberpunk made real kind of world where a lot of people that were punk rockers found another place to kind of like build this sort of utopia in some ways. Yeah, they bizarrely the you know, the, the a lot of those founded the games industry found to found a kind of countercultural home there. The games industry went on to now where it is now is bigger than film and music put together, you know, in yeah. terms of its, uh, in terms of its, uh, its sales, there's access into the into the homes of ordinary people so you know these people these kind of crazies that we were squatting together end up running the world really this is weird you did actually ask me something about music you said how soon did i when i got back did i um join circus well it didn't quite work like that i think i i think i worked in the computer industry for a couple of years but was was uh, very unhappy there and uh, very unhappy working in an office, something I've I've struggled with because working in office gives you the ability to do amazing work. You know, going going to the same desk every day and working from nine to five, I found as when I was working as a lawyer, gives you access to a universe of wonder, you know, but it's just so difficult for me. The routine just drives me insane. You know, walking in the office in the morning, morning morning see the program on tv morning like a coffee you know the same people the same desk oh god and after six months i start to go crazy and by the end of the year i you know i'm i'm, I'm either going to smash everything up and burn it or walk into the sea never to be seen again so i it, the time was right for me to do something graham the guitarist introduced me to damon immediately it was very clear to me that damon had something that almost nobody else in the Colchester music scene had, which was songs. Damon was a songwriter. Lots of other people could play their instruments really well, but nobody was really concentrating on songwriting. And it was like a light bulb moment. So I, uh, he was playing a gig, which was great. I saw it when Graham introduced me to him after the gig. And I said, really liked it. If you ever see, if you ever need a drummer, give me a call. So. Damon called a couple of weeks later and said, I'm doing a bit of recording. He had a job in a recording studio in central London in Houston, which meant that he could use the studio when there weren't any clients in it. And there weren't many clients in the studio. It wasn't very successful. So we basically had the studio to ourselves. So he said, he said, yeah, I'm doing some recording in the studio. Do you want to come up and make some music together? So I did at that time. It was this was pre it being called Circus, which it was called Circus for about five minutes. You know, we had a different name every gig. But um, yeah, Graham was playing saxophone at that time. Graham, I think 
Graham finds guitar a bit too easy, frustratingly. He's like the Oscar Peterson of uh, of uh, guitar, really. You know, you kind of... But it makes me laugh when you watch YouTube clips of uh, of kind of musicians and they go... And, you know, God, that looks so hard. That's brilliant, you know. Well, Graham makes it look so easy. Graham goes... Without going like that, you know. He's just... Yeah. You know, so he did a bit of a guitar genius. I think he, I think he found that frustratingly easy. So he was playing saxophone in the band. He found that found that more challenging. So no, go on. So what kind of bands were you guys playing with at the time? Like, is Mega City Four and and Useless Things and or Senseless Things and all that kind of scene? That was yeah. By the time we finally became Blur, that was yeah. Not so much Mega City Four. I, I think they were they were the sort of generation before but uh yeah by the time so graham yeah we had a different guitarist and bassist they both left in a huff they threw their handbags out over some slight or other and graham reluctantly picked up the guitar and uh, brought his friend alex in who was he went to college with and that was blur but yes we we were called i think the first week we were called the beads uh circus potentially Seymour, we were called. But literally, we had a different name every gig, and each time we thought, "Yes, that's it. It's a brilliant name," you know. Only to, only to get bored of it and change it again at the next one. And senseless things, yeah, they were started around the same time. We were friends with Cass, the drummer, very gregarious um, guy. But uh, yeah, they were all good fun. And so we were. There's there was a club in Central London called Syndrome where uh, all of the bands at that time that you know just this right at the start of their careers used to go um, because the drinks were if you were in a band you got in free and the drinks were ultra cheap you know and we were all utterly penniless so uh, you could go there get in for nothing and get completely drunk for the five pounds that you had in your pocket you know and there's a big central dance floor when your when your new single got played, you would shimmy over to and kind of just see if anyone's anyone dancing. Is it going down well? Whilst desperately trying to look like you weren't looking, you know, you didn't care if anybody liked it or not. So that was that was a great time. Well, you mentioned the name changes, and I think Damon also worked at the Portobello Hotel, right in the bar, because yeah. my dad was kind of living at the Portobello Hotel at the time, and I would go over there. And uh, very distinctly remember a discussion about the band name. And my dad's favorite story is to tell that he said that Blur was a bad name and they should stick with one of the other names because it would go a lot further that way. But I've got a lot of memories of sitting in that bar, probably inappropriately young, drinking Shirley Temples over the years. Yeah, well, he was the night barman. Yeah. That's his job. So it meant he could carry on his normal music career by day and then he he worked nights when he ever slept i don't know he worked nights in the portobello hotel and that paid pretty well he never had to buy a drink you know and he got to that was it was a, a very fashionable hotel in those days yes it was everybody stayed there so he got to meet all these famous people you know he met michael kane ended up doing a be an extra in a michael kane film i think he got thrown off set because he wouldn't stop doing this at the camera <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
Yeah, so the, that was that was. I mean, God, at the time, he he was the only one working in the band, so he you know he was paying for everything as well. <laughs> How did the relationship with Food Records come about? Because once again, as you mentioned off the top, there's like you know Dalek One and Teardrop Explodes. Like there's deep punk connections there too. Yeah, well, we loved we all loved Teardrop Explodes and Julian Cope especially, and so the but they were the we got we got written about in Music Week, which is the industry uh, industry magazine, weekly industry magazine, and so all the all of the uh, record companies sent somebody over to see us, and I, at the time our stage show was very chaotic, involved lots of leaping around and pushing over the drum kit. It was a punk, a proper kind of 1970s punk show, really, with smash guitars and, you know, Dave would climb around in the lighting rig if there was one. And uh, Dave Balfe, who was the keyboard player in Teardrop Explodes and, you know, the sort of driving force really behind the whole thing, he was, he'd run a label called Food and he came along to the show and just, I think he saw Julian in Damon and uh, was very attracted to us. So, um, yeah, they signed us for £7,000 for 10 albums, which is, that's quite a, even in those days, that was a bad deal, I have to say. <laughs> that's that <laughs> London music anything. industry. If we'd had to pay them £7,000, we'd have done it, you know. We'd have taken whatever. It's a terrible disparity of, uh, of, uh, of power, really, in those uh, negotiations. Well, like you're saying, that first rung to get on as a band is is impossible, and and you'll literally sell your soul to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, we'd have done whatever. What about with um, Andy Ross? Because he's obviously like I'm a huge fan of all his music stuff. But when did you meet him? Because he plays, I guess, a key role in the band's kind of. Yeah, trajectory. he was there. The, he came the same time, and so he was. Uh, he and Dave were running the record label. Andy was doing the kind of creative and press side, and Dave was doing the business side, really. Um, but uh, so we met him and we, Andy became our kind of contact really at the label. Dave became the one we kicked against and Andy was the one who, who, uh, you know, would take us out after an argument, you know, and kind of soothe the wounds. So, uh, and he was great, you know, he was an ideas man. It, it, both he and Dave were, but especially Andy, because he was a music journalist. So he knew what the journalists were looking for. So, you know, many of the kind of crazy ideas we had, had their genesis in conversations with Andy, really. So, yeah, that, those were great times. The, the, we were broke, really, for years, not least because our first manager ripped us off to call our money. So, uh, you know, classic music industry, classic music industry story, but... Uh, um, it meant for the, for years we had to choose really between um, eating, getting cigarettes, or getting the tube into central London in the morning. You know, you have your choice really. What do you want to do today? Eat, smoke, or uh, get on public transport? Almost always we used to walk, of course, because eating or smoking were far better than far better choices. Well, given that you've <laughs> given that you do have, you know, this other career, you know, and that it is so hard, you're getting ripped off by managers and it is, it is a grind. Was there ever this sort of drawback to the other life or was it always, we're going to make this work? No, not really. I did get a part-time job when I first moved up to London with the band because uh, we weren't signed at that point. So I got a part-time job um, 
sell it for a, what I thought was a charity selling um, sort of charity balloon races where you would buy a you know you buy a balloon and the, the one they would send them off into the atmosphere and the one that got the furthest would win a prize you know which yeah. that thing was a scam and uh, the TV cameras turned up one day, luckily I was off that day, but I got went into work one day and everyone went, oh my God, TV cameras turned up, the whole thing's a lie, the whole thing's a scam. <laughs> <laughs> and it was on the, it was a scam that was on the really, on the gray areas of charity law. Basically the, the owners of the charity had, the charity had been, uh, had been creaming the legal limit that where they were allowed to out of the, 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 money we collected something like 90 percent of it but they were and the the other 10 percent was going to charitable causes you know but there was a there was a kind of blip and there was a there was a lacuna in the charity law that meant that actually wasn't illegal it was ridiculously immoral but uh, they couldn't actually be prosecuted for it but anyway that was the beginning and the end of my part-time job and shortly after that we got signed anyway so it didn't matter it's interesting because, like, you know, the idea of, of a band changing the world is such a, you know, far-fetched thing. But, you know, I watched that Live Forever documentary when it came out. And watching that documentary, there is almost sort of this cultural shift that happens in the wake of, you know, Blur and, and you know, the few other bands that you kind of guys explode with. And it's it's so interesting to see how, you know, like you were talking about how punk was sort of this uniquely british form of rebellion that kind of comes to full fruition i guess with sort of like for lack of a better term brit pop but like modern british music at that time yeah maybe i mean there was it kind of our ascent really into kind of public consciousness coincided with a lot of other things in the uk becoming good you know we had a labor government that uh, transformed the country um and transformed our international reputation and for for really the first time in a long time it people stopped had were able to stop being embarrassed about being british and and felt that they could be proud of it you know didn't last long we're back to being embarrassed now of course but uh, um yeah there was a brief blip where uh, people people said things like cool britannia in an unironic way like they actually meant Britain is cool. Very, very unused to that feeling in uh, in Britain. It's kind of, uh, as I say, it's not a feeling that lasted very long. But we were kind of caught up in the excitement of that, I think, as well. That was a, one of the reasons for our for our success. It's almost though like it took ten years for culture to kind of like recover from punk, and then it's sort of this period where. Like, once again, you have Damien Hirst, you've got film, you've got, you know, the music changing, you've got government changing. There's this whole, I guess the government change even happens after you guys kind of blow up, though. Like, that's a couple years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 almost like that pre-foretells the government changing in a way. And it's like this sort of cultural shift that's happening yes. first. I mean, it it definitely happened after we had you know turned professional we were we were well into our careers but we were still a small band at that point mm. you know it wasn't really till the four brits thing and the oasis chart battle and all of that that that's what actually propelled us to the next stage but it yeah the cool britannia thing definitely helped you see 
my problem is I've no idea actually in which order things happened, what year things happened, if they happened at all. Did it actually happen? Am I actually in a band or did I just dream it? Well, like that's the thing. You've got like a, a wild career, like outside of music, like, you know, politics and computer animation, like internet stuff. And then being the, the space stuff, like, like yeah. you're involved in like space programs too. Yeah. Like it, it just feels like the, uh, the music thing is, is almost just like a back, a backbeat. Well, they, it was a full-time job for a long time. Um, and then suddenly it wasn't. And that's, you know, there's been several periods of that from that point onwards in the band and I've had to find other things to do. Luckily, I'm somebody that finds the world endlessly fascinating. And I've also also been blessed and cursed with a slightly obsessive nature. So if I get to, if I get my teeth into something, I really get my teeth into it and take it all away. So yeah, when I, for example, when I started uh, volunteering at a, a legal aid law firm in the East London, in East London, that was a, that led to me qualifying as a lawyer myself and practicing as a criminal lawyer myself. So, you know, I'm not somebody that tends to sort of pick things up and kind of sort of do them on the sidelines. It's, it's all or nothing with me. I throw myself into things with a vengeance. Was there you know like with with the different things that you're going through in terms of the popularity and the ascent of the band do you ever feel like was it easy to kind of maintain your head during that time too or was it something that you feel kind of catches you up because i'm just i'm fascinated by the way fame at any level and attention at any level affects a band but the level that yourselves go through it at it's it's hyper accelerated like if it if it's fucking with a little punk band that's doing a, a couple tours a year i can't imagine what it's like to do it at that level i think you have to be pretty careful or the music industry especially that as you get more successful it kind of infantilizes you you get you know that especially when you're on tour you're playing a show tonight 30,000 people have bought tickets. The show's got to happen. So everything is geared around those few hours in the evening and all accommodations are made to make sure that the show happens and the show's successful. And that, that if you're not careful, and I wasn't careful, that can really mess with your perspective, sense of who you are, sense of your importance in the world, you know, and then you get alcohol and drugs hit the scene. Neither of those are particularly uh, are particularly helpful in those kind of circumstances. So yeah, people can go completely off the rails, and certainly I did. Yeah, you know, mess well, around there. I just I, I fucked up pretty badly several times. Well, the alcohol thing, especially like it's yeah. it's it fuels the industry, right? Like it's always there. Like, and if you have a if you have a problem with it, God help you. It's always there, and it's free. You know. Yeah. Yeah. At least you have to pay for the drugs. So, you know, eventually your money will run out, but the alcohol is free. Yeah. So, yeah, if you don't, if that's an issue, it's going to be a big issue. Yeah. And you may or may not be able to deal with that. You may not be able to get out of it. In a system. Yeah. I was lucky I got out, but uh, many people don't. Well, speaking of getting out, I would love to talk to you forever, 
Dave, and I <laughs> and I could keep you here forever. And uh, I <laughs> got to say, anytime you want to come back, because there's a lot more we could discuss. But uh, it's been a huge thrill to get to talk to you. It's been my pleasure. It'd be great to meet you. And yeah, let's do this again. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, David, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, David will hopefully be back at some point in the future to talk about space programs or becoming a barrister and all sorts of stuff. He's done a lot of cool stuff, a lot of interesting things over the years. And so check out his little band blur. You know, the name, the name worked, you know, go, go shows my dad, you know, the name did work. He said the same thing about fucked up. He said our name probably wasn't going to work. Yeah. He might've been right with the fucked up one, but <laughs> blurry. I think he was, you'd have to take an L on, uh, radio songs. Also Dave Roundtree, uh, available now on cooking vinyl. Fantastic record. Don't let it go, uh, overlooked by yourself. If you're a fan of blur or just, you know, uh, music in general. Yeah, that's it. All right, on to next week on the show, or the next episode of the show. It's coming out hot and heavy for you, and it's a splits. I normally don't announce the splits, but I figure why not. Uh, Coming up in a couple days, it's going to be the return to the show of one of the the greatest actors of our generation. Michael Imperioli comes back to the show. This is after White Lotus and, of course, the uh, return of the Sopranos to... I guess the Sopranos never went away, but he's returned to the spotlight with White Lotus and he's been doing all the, the podcasts in the last few years. And one of my favorite people to talk to and, and interact with and see, but also coming back to the show with him is one of the deepest head punk people I've gotten to meet through doing this show, an amazing comedian and just a, an all around cool dude, Chris Estrada. So we are bringing together Michael Imperioli and Chris Estrada for a fun conversation on the next episode of the show. Well, that is it for me. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues faced by Indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights. And stop hate and violence towards people of different sexualities, different faiths, different races, different... Just knock all this shit off because... We're talking about stuff here that's not politics. We're talking about human rights. People deserve to be able to live free, secure in the knowledge that they don't have to fear for hate and violence being committed against them for just no other reason than who they are. So if there's organizations in your community that are making positive change and affecting positive change, maybe get involved. Donate your time. If you've got money, donate some money. I'd also add to this, we got to make sure that people keep their hands out of other people's reproductive choices and allow them to kind of do what they want to do with their own bodies. Uh, So get involved. Speaking of getting involved, punk gets better when you get involved. Start a band, start a fanzine, start a record label, start a podcast. Well, I mean, not a podcast. There's a lot of those. Ah, fucking start a podcast. This is the easiest thing to do. Do something. Do something. It'll make you feel better. And maybe if you don't want to do something that grandiose, just draw a picture for yourself. Do something creative. Get your get that side of yourself exercised and out there and free. And speaking about getting free, try meditating. I have talked to a lot of people who are very way more successful than I could ever hope to be in their respective fields. And the one common denominator is that they all meditate. And it's not like I'm going to try and sell you on one type of meditation because there's a lot of different types out there. But I think what is important is that you find a practice 
that allows you to just quiet your head for a second. And I know I'm not the first person to say this stuff. And I certainly have come to this fairly late in life. Well, maybe not late in life. Hopefully I live a lot longer than this, but later in my life. And it has really helped me. So maybe it'll help you. There's lots of ways to do it. There's lots of free apps. There's lots of people. Michael Imperioli runs a meditation thing on his Instagram from time to time. But it might help you feel better. Speaking about feeling better, sign your organ donor cards. Because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. And they can really help someone feel better. I've seen miracles happen with these organ donations. I've seen it with my own eyes. I wasn't in the room, but I've seen the results afterwards. And it's amazing. So do all these things I tell you to do because these are edicts handed down from on high by a guy sitting in his basement talking to himself in front of a tomb full of records. Anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, have a great w- uh, week, a couple days. Before I see you the next one. Anyway, bye. <laughs>